Well, summer's over. Vacation's gone. School has started. Ho-hum. I mean, anybody else feel just like maybe a little bit apathetic, you know? I mean, there's just times, right, when it just seems kind of hard to, to really care much about anything. Uh, and, and one of the things that I sometimes do when I'm feeling apathetic is I go and, and waste some time at a website called despair.com. Is anybody familiar with this? Some, some of you are. Um, they they kind of specialize in apathy, um, and they produce a whole line of products that they call demotivators, okay? Not motivators, demotivators. Uh, so let me, let me show you, uh, you know, one or two of my favorites here. This, this is great. Believe in yourself. So inspiring. Because the rest of us think you're an idiot. That's the subtext, if you can't see it in the back. Or even, you know, as we think about apathy, right, and that, that sense that we, that we all get. Here, here's another one. Um, underachievement. The tallest blade of grass is the first to be cut by the lawnmower. Mull that over for a little bit, right? Okay, another one, give up. At some point, hanging in there just makes you look like an even bigger loser. It's very encouraging. Okay, and and then a a synonym, really, for for apathy, right? For what we're, we're talking about. Indifference. It takes 43 muscles to frown and 17 to smile, but it doesn't take any to just sit there with a dumb look on your face. And now that we're all like, you know, past our apathy, right? We're ready to tackle the fall. We're, we're motivated and ready to go once again, right? Uh, we, can, we can put these things behind us and just tack, well, not, not really. And we just, I mean, we smile at these things. We, we chuckle together. Um, but I think oftentimes we, I, underestimate my apathy, uh, especially when it comes to spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. I mean, what, what is that? What does that even mean? Well, look at it this way. I mean, sure, there, there are some of us here, without, without a doubt, and I don't want to minimize this, who are at risk of, a, of just flat-out rebellion, right? Of that, that one day just sort of chucking it all um, and, you know, jumping into the, the deep end of unbelief and sin. I mean, I don't, I don't want to minimize that. that. That happens. But I'm guessing that's probably not the primary temptation for most of us. It's pretty unlikely that you're just all of a sudden, you know, if you're a follower of Christ right now at this moment, that all of a sudden, completely out of the blue, you're just going to wake up one day and say, I'm, God, I'm done. I'm done with you. It's pretty unlikely. The greater risk for most of us is that slow and steady drip of apathy. You know, you just don't you just don't care quite as much as you used to. It's a, a once faithful heart, right, that just slowly, subtly, unnoticeably just begins to, to go out of tune. It's not some major sin that, that bowls you over. It's just lots of little tiny indiscretions of the heart. You don't wake up one day and say, God, I'm done. You just find that you care a little bit less and then a little bit less. And then a little bit less. And those, those sins that used to bother you, right? You can probably think of some of them in your life. I can't in mind that used to bother you. They're still there. They just don't bother you quite as much. Do you know that feeling, right? 
And you used to be so disciplined, right? Praying, reading your Bible, and yeah, now still it happens, just not quite like it did. Or your experience of worship, right? It used to be so sweet, and I mean, you could almost feel God's presence, and now it kind of just feels like going through the motions. Does this sound at all familiar to anybody? And we just might lose sight of what we believe, and of who we are, and, and who God is, and before we even know what happened, all could be lost. It seems so harmless, though, doesn't it? I know in my life, I brush it off so easily. I am apathetic about my apathy. And yet, spiritual apathy is the silent killer of Christians. It's the silent killer, just like high cholesterol, right, or high blood pressure. I mean, you, you can't see it. You, you often don't even necessarily know that it's there, and you even feel mostly okay if you suffer from those things, and yet your life is at risk. It happens to churches, it happens to families, it happens to pastors, it happens to people, just, just like every one of us. And it even, even happened to the, the, the people of Israel so long ago. And so this, this morning, we, we find ourselves at the very end of the Old Testament, the last two chapters, Malachi chapters 3 and 4. I mean, this, this is the end. If you were, you were here when we started the service, you saw a video and we proclaimed, right, that Jesus is coming September 1st, okay? Uh, for those of you who are, are with us, who have who've been with us for a while, you know that we're, we're going through the whole Bible this year, right? Uh, we're reading it together. We are studying it together on Sunday mornings and Finally, right, we're to the New Testament next week, September 1st, both in our reading as well as in the, the messages, we will be in the New Testament together. But, but we're, not, we're not there yet, okay? Uh, it's, it's not happening. Right now, okay, right at these last two chapters of the Old Testament, we are right on the cusp of 400 years of silence, 400 years of, of God's people waiting for Messiah to come, Right? Waiting, longing, hoping for him to come. I mean, think about that just in perspective, right? I mean, America has been around for 237 years. But for 400 years, God's people don't hear anything from him. And so Malachi, then, he is this this prophet. He is writing a little bit after the time of, of Nehemiah. I mean, some of you might remember Nehemiah. We, we talked about him uh, a few months ago, right? This, he's the guy who, who came back and, and rebuilt the wall of the newly established people of Israel. So even just to put it in perspective, right? We, we've been through the kingdoms, you know, the kings of Israel. Uh, we've seen them rebel against God. The Babylonians and the Assyrians swoop in, destroy them. Uh, they, they're brought out of their homeland. And then finally, they're, they're brought back in. They're reestablished. And now here, here we are, right at the end chronologically. I know it's hard, especially in the prophets, to kind of keep chronological order straight, right? But we're right at the end. And here, here they are. And so at this point in Israel's history, quite honestly, um, I mean, they've kind of gotten over some of their big issues of the past, okay? Like idolatry, you know, they, they worshiped idols, all of that. I mean, they kind of learned that lesson. They learned it hard, but by this point, they've, they've learned it for the most part. And, and even their, their pervasive injustice towards the people around them, they're, they're beginning to learn that lesson. They've, they've moved beyond that, at least to some extent. God showed them the error of their ways. And so now at the point for Israel, 
At this moment in history, they're, they're mostly obedient, mostly decent, mostly honoring to God, which, again, if you think about all the terrain we've covered, is a huge improvement, right? But God knows that they have a 400-year wait for Messiah to come. And he already begins to see the seeds of apathy starting to, to sprout up in their lives. And so he sends one final prophet to warn them. And in this text that we're going to look at, we see three signs of an apathetic heart. Three that I know I've seen in my life. I see it here in this story, and I think probably many of us see it as well. Three signs. First, an apathetic heart doubts God's goodness. Second, an apathetic heart settles for second best. And third, eventually, an apathetic heart breeds cynicism. And we'll see, spiritual apathy is the silent killer of Christians. Now, the first sign here that your heart or your family or your church, whatever you want to to look at, might be growing apathetic, is this growing doubt in God's goodness. Well, let's begin reading in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. God is speaking. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. Now, let's back up just for a second here, because it kind of feels like, I mean, if we would just sort of read these verses, it kind of feels like we're in the middle of a conversation, doesn't it? We've just sort of jumped in, that other things are happening. And, and really, what's going on in Malachi, Malachi is a very unusual writer. You'll, you'll see that this week as you read Malachi, those of you who are reading along, um, that it kind of goes sort of, it's a conversation. I mean, through Malachi, God will say something to the people, and the people will respond back, and then God will say something, and then the people will respond back, and, and Malachi is sort of all writing this down. It's kind of this, this ongoing conversation, and so it does kind of feel like we're, we're right in the middle. What has prompted God here to say, I, the Lord, do not change? Why is he saying that? Okay, it's a decent question, isn't it? But if we go back to the, the very first two verses of Malachi, it really sets the stage for what God is doing in this book. Because it begins in in verse 2 with God saying to his people, I have loved you, he says. And they respond back, well, how have you loved us? And so that sort sort of doubt right there in God's goodness, like, God, really? I mean, have you been around God? We've we've had a rough, you know, couple of centuries here. Uh, How have you loved us? Prove it to us. And so God then begins to recount the ways that he's loved his people, the ways that they've doubted his love, and he builds that statement there in in, uh, chapter 3 that I, the Lord, do not change. So how has he loved them? Well, we've been through this story together, right? I mean, this this here, right, This this is what we've covered so far, okay? And essentially God is saying... I mean, story after story after story, this is how much I love you. And we'll get to this, right? We'll get to see more of that. But God says, I've loved you this much. 
right? Haven't, haven't you seen? And I do not change, he's saying. I'm, I'm the same God who, who created you and who called Abraham and who rescued you from Egypt and who showed love to Rahab the prostitute and who rose up a king like, like David and sent the prophets when you were rebelling and, and let you come back into the land and, and rebuild the wall and be reestablished. I am that same God. I do not change. I mean, if you want to know how I've loved you, just look at that. Look at, look at what I've already done on your behalf, God is saying. And I, the Lord, do not change. If you return to me, he says, just like always, I will return to you. But they doubt his goodness. Which in many ways, if you think about it, is kind of the story of the first sin and of every sin after because even if you put yourself for a moment like in the Garden of Eden and that, that mysterious story there with this conversation between Eve and the serpent, right? Such a, such a strange scene to think about. But what does the serpent say to Eve? I mean, essentially saying, come on, Eve, really? Your God is so stingy that he made this incredible garden. He said, you can't eat from that tree. Did your God really say that? I mean, how, how could he? I mean, Eve, he's, he's just trying to hold you back. That's all he's doing. Seems harmless, doesn't it? But it got Eve to thinking, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe this God of ours isn't all that great. And then she takes that terrible bite, right? And really, if you think about it, if I think about it, every, every sin of mine follows that same pattern after, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's as if the serpent keeps whispering to us, come on, Nathan, your God is so stingy. Look at all those rules. All the things he tells you you should do and, and shouldn't do. I mean, if, if God really loved you, if he was really good to you, then it'd be okay if you did whatever, right? And slowly, subtly, we begin to think, well, maybe, maybe he's not as good as I thought. And parents, kids, right? We deal with this all the time, don't we? Parents, how many times have you said to your, to your kids, you know, because I want what's best for you, right? That's why. It's because I love you, because I, I want to show you goodness. And kids, I mean, how many times have you been convinced that you knew what was best for you so much better than your parents? It's an endless cycle. And we do it on and on and on, and it breaks our hearts. And this, this in many ways, this is what God feels, right? We begin to think, is God really good? And not is he, is he really good? Because many of us will say, well, yeah, God, God, God is good, right? Theor- out there, but, but God is good. Is he good to me? That's, that's where it begins to break down. Is he good to you personally, your, your situation? And that kind of apathy towards God and his goodness can so easily lead us down a path we don't want to go. I mean, C.S. Lewis, for example, he, he writes, he says, instead, indeed, the safest road to hell, he says, is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I mean, essentially what he's saying, it's not always the big and spectacular sins. So often it's just the growing apathy that God really isn't all that good after all. So think about that. And where are you beginning to doubt God's goodness in your life? Small compromises, 
little, little tiny complaints, maybe just a growing frustration at the place where, where God has, has put you. You look at your, your family or your school or your job or your church and you think, eh, maybe just, maybe something's not quite right. And maybe you don't even see it yet, but that's what you're doing, doubting his goodness. Because it is subtle and it's deadly. But I love what God tells his people in response to this. He says, return to me, he says. Did you catch that? That's, that's the command. Return to me and I will return to you. And back at the way he began, for I, the Lord, do not change. I love that God says this. I mean, whenever I begin to doubt God's goodness, which honestly, I mean, that happens more in my life than, I, than I'd care to admit. But I have to remind myself in those moments, in those, those situations in which I'm saying, God, are you really good in my life? I have to ask myself, what, what's happened? What's changed? I trusted his goodness yesterday, at least somewhat. So why am I having struggle trusting him today? What's changed? Because it's, it's not God that's changed, right? Because he says, I, the Lord, never change. I mean, just think about that for, for a moment. I mean, the God who made you, the God who called you, the God, the God who you first experienced when you came to Jesus, the God of this ancient book that we've been studying together, the God of Noah way back then is the same God of you. And he says, I do not change. Everything changes, right? Everyone changes, but not him. And if he was good once, he will be good forever. And do you believe that? When you feel that apathy creeping in, return to him, and he will return to you, he says. And do it soon. Because spiritual apathy is a silent killer of Christians. Well, second here. An apathetic heart settles for second best. Because reality is, if we doubt God's goodness long enough, we'll inevitably begin looking for goodness elsewhere. I mean, it's just how we're wired, right? We're created to love something, to worship someone. We will do that. We will love and give our lives and our devotion to something or someone in this world. That's, that's how we're made. And so when the goodness of God is diminished in our hearts, we will settle for just about anything. And each one of us probably has, right, a long list of things that, that we will run to. I mean, maybe it's sex or power or, or control, all kinds of things that we go to, settling for second best in our lives. But the one that, that God hits on here in particular is money. Oh, good, right? We all love talking about money, especially in church, don't we? But here it is. I mean, look, just, just look at this. At the end of, of verse 7, this is some shocking language God uses. He says, but you say, okay, so again, this conversation play back and forth. You say, how shall we return? And God says, well, I'll, I'll tell you how you'll return. And he asks them a question. He says, will man rob God? You're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God says back, in your tithes and contributions... Yikes. Okay, that's interesting, right? You see, God's people had sort of become cheapskates towards God. 
Um, and back in, in chapter 1, again, just kind of bringing some context here into Malachi, um, it says that the people actually, they were bringing offerings to God, which is interesting, right? They actually were bringing something to him, but instead of bringing the best, they were bringing the leftovers. And instead of bringing the, the tithe, the, you know, 10%, they were sort of bringing what was convenient for them. But they were bringing something, which, I mean, just kind of sounds small, doesn't it? A little bit petty. I mean, because I'm guessing quite a few of us, that's kind of our pattern, right? For some of us, if, if we give at all, it's, it's the leftovers when it's convenient, right? But at least it's something. But what does God say here? You're robbing me, he says. He says, if you're not generous, you're a thief. Yikes. I mean, how can he say such strong words here? You see, nothing demonstrates what we truly love like the way we use our money. I mean, you just think about it, nothing. And our stinginess towards God, it doesn't just reveal our apathy towards him. Ultimately, it reveals that we're in bed with lesser lovers, that we're settling for, for second best, that there's something with either money or something that money provides that we want more than God. Sort of like we're saying, well, this is what money does and this is what God does, so I'm going to go with money. That's what our use of money reveals about our hearts. I mean, just again, an, an example here. Think of it this way. Um, some of you know me pretty well. Others of you not so much. Uh, but just imagine for a moment, like if I put our family budget, um, you know, on the screen. Every detail, you know, how much we spend on housing, cars, vacation, how much we save, uh, retirement, how much we give, eating out, everything, right? Um, we're not going to do that, thank goodness, right? Although if you asked me about it, we could have the conversation. Uh, but we're not going to do that here. But think about what you would learn about the Miller family by a spreadsheet, pretty remarkable, wouldn't it? I mean, in like six seconds, you would have a really good idea of our priorities as a family, the things that we love, the things that we're passionate about, the things that we care most deeply about, just like that. And when God sees your budget, when he sees my budget, he knows our priorities. He knows the things that we love. And so God is saying here, as strong as this language is, he says, if you're not giving generously, And in this context, he's talking about a tithe or more is the idea, 10% or more. If you're not doing that, God says you're stealing from him. And ultimately, you're settling. That's that's the real, real thing. Not only are you stealing, you're just settling for second best. It's not God who misses out when we're not generous. It's us. Because this is how we're created to live. This is where there's delight. Of course, you know, I say that, but who really believes that, right? You know, that it's better to give than to receive. Who, or, yeah, who, who, who does? Because if you think about it, an ungenerous person cannot possibly believe that a generous lifestyle is better. You just can't, you can't even begin to believe it. And God knows that. And he knows how skeptical we are. And so I love, I love where God goes next in this passage. I mean, I, I've seen in Malachi the, the robbing God, the strong language there before. And so that wasn't new for me. But, but this week, studying this text, 
I was just floored by what God says next. I mean, something you don't really expect God to say. He essentially just says, well, just try it. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what he gets at. Just, just give it a shot, will you? I mean, he, he knows how, how apathetic we are, right? He knows that this is a difficult thing, and he says, just try being generous. Just try me out and see what happens. Look at it in verse 10. He says, put me to the test, right? Which is essentially, just try it, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. You're apathetic towards me, God says. You doubt my goodness by putting me second. You are settling for second. He says, why don't instead, why don't you just try trusting me for a while and see what happens? Because you see, generosity stretches us. I mean, right? I mean, it teaches us to trust like little else, right? You don't have any choice if you're generous, but to learn how to trust God, which makes generosity a really powerful way to fight spiritual apathy. Because you can't help but trust. You have to trust in those situations. And it kind of reminds me in some ways, I know this is silly, uh, but it, what God is doing here kind of reminds me of the, uh, the Netflix two-week trial, right? You, you, they, they give away two free weeks to anybody who wants to try it out, right? Um, why do they do that, right? That's their only product is to sell subscription. Why do they give away two free weeks? Because they know you're going to love it, right? They know that you're going you're gonna to try those two weeks and you're going to get addicted and you just you can't have enough. And I mean, Kelly and I, we tried the two-week trial, okay, like 300 weeks ago. Uh, seriously, okay? And we're, we're still devoted customers. I think that's kind of what God is. Just, just taste it. Just try it. Just see what a generous life could be. And I, and I remember pretty clearly when I did this in college, um, you just started tithing. Um, I didn't have anything, you know, paying school bills and all that, but I don't know even the context in which God convicted me. I mean, I'd grown up in church and all that. I knew the right answer, but I'd never really practiced it. Or God, God just grabbed me and said, you know what, start doing this. And my response, honestly, to God was probably something like, fine, but I'm not going to like it, you know. I don't want to do this, God. I need that money. I, there's, I've got plans with that money. But I started trying it. You know, and instantly, like, money started raining from the ceiling, and we all lived <laughs> happily ever after, right? Because we all know that's just how it works. I mean, don't believe anybody who tells you that's how it works. That's not how it works. And the reality is, I mean, Kelly and I, we have had seasons in which we've had really hard financial moments, right? Those, those difficult times when you're just trying to, to make ends meet, trying to make good decisions. We've had that. And, and I've had plenty of times, probably even more of these, where I sit down and begin fantasizing about what I could do with that money. Have you ever done that? That's dangerous. But I wouldn't go back. Because I've seen God's faithfulness. And once you've seen that, I mean, how could you possibly go back? Because in so many ways, Jesus proved it to me. I mean, he, he was right, believe it or not, right? I mean, it took a little longer than a two-week trial. But he was right. It really is more blessed to give than to receive. Who knew, right? I know so many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
So many of you live this beautifully. You, you are passionate about generosity, even when it hurts. Some of you can't afford it, and yet you, you love to be generous. You long to be generous. You've, you've taken God at his word, and you have trusted him enough to live a generous life. And once you've had a taste, you can't go back. And God says to his people, loud and clear in those verses, and even the verses we didn't read there, right in that section, he says, guys, I'm going to take care of you. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In fact, if, if generosity is a new thing for you, it's probably going to get really hard before it gets any easier, right? It doesn't mean everything's just going to be fine. You're just going to have a smooth and happy life. He doesn't promise that at all. But God does promise that it'll be better. God knows generosity is a powerful way to fight spiritual apathy. Just, just give this God a try. And finally... And I think this one's probably the scariest of all because I think these, these seem to build a little bit on each other. But an apathetic heart then, it breeds cynicism. So this is now one of God's final warnings to his people in the Old Testament before 400 years of quiet. Look what he says in verse 13. God is speaking. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. You have said to my face, it's, it's pointless serving you, God. It's empty. I mean, do you see the cynicism? Are you, are you following what's going on? I mean, from doubting God's goodness, right, to, to settling for second best, now they're outright accusing God. What good is it serving you, God? And, and essentially there, the, the context is, that they're, they're saying to God, you know, we have seen the wicked prosper. And who hasn't seen that, right? And, and they're saying, we have seen the righteous suffer, good people suffering. And so God, at the end of the day, what's the point? What good are you? Why would we follow you, they're saying. And they're growing cynical. Cynicism, right? A definition here, bitterly or sneeringly distrustful, contemptuous or pessimistic. Sneeringly distrustful. And I'll be the first to admit, I mean, I struggle with this, with others, I mean, with just the world in, in general. As I, as I look around, I mean, it's, it's pretty hard in a world as broken as ours, isn't it, not to grow cynical. And I, I struggle with this so much. I mean, you want to know what my, my, my sweet little four-year-old daughter said a few months ago? I mean, sweet little precious Eden, completely oblivious in this moment, um, she out of the blue, completely random. She said to, to Kelly, my wife, she, she said, Mommy, people are the worst. I wonder where she got that. Yeah, probably from her dad, the pastor, okay? Um, I mean, it's easy to get cynical. But what does this kind of cynicism look like? You know, it's a subtle attitude that, that just says, what's the point? It's the disposition that, that looks for the worst in others. It looks for the worst in God even. And some of us, I mean, let's be honest, some of us are great at that, right? We know, some of us, everything that's wrong with everything, don't we? You know, all your wife's flaws. You know, everything that's wrong with your, your job. Everything that's wrong with everything. And you trust no one. You love maybe a few, maybe, if you're lucky. And you probably hate grace, like we talked about last week with Jonah. 
And in our cynicism, we begin to think that we know everything. I mean, that's, I think at the end of the day, that's probably what cynicism is. It's just sort of this arrogant positioning of saying, I, I know better, right? We, we even can turn our, our cynicism in towards the church, can't we? And towards other believers, we turn the place of God's family into a place of bitterness and distrust instead of a place of, of prayer and worship and serving. And ultimately, I, I think this is what God is getting to in Malachi. It, it's because... It's because if we're honest, we don't really think God is all that great at being God. Right? You could probably do better, you know? I, mean, I think at, at its root, that's what, that's what happened. I mean, God, come on. If, what good is following you when, when things are so chaotic and it seems so unjust and, and problems abound and, and my life never gets fixed? What, what good is it, God? And even though many of us would probably be terrified to even utter such words, it's where our spiritual apathy leads. I mean, it seems so harmless, but it is the silent killer. So what does God tell us to do? How do we combat this one? Well, I think we can summarize the rest of Malachi. So the, the, the verses here in chapter 3 and the rest of, of chapter 4, I, th- I think generally what God is saying as he wraps up the Old Testament, um, how do we fight against the apathy that breeds cynicism? Um, we hold on to his story. We hold on to his story. Because I know for me, my most apathetic moments are, are when, when I forget that God is doing something, even when I can't see it. My most apathetic moments are when I forget that history is moving somewhere, that God has something in mind, that he is God and I am not, that, that the story he is telling isn't quite over. And so God here in these verses that follow, we don't have time to, to look at them much, but, but God says basically there's a day that is coming, people. There's a day that is coming. God knows the world's not right. He knows it's not fair. He knows it's chaotic sometimes and, and frustrating at best, but he's not done yet. I mean, one of the reasons that we've been doing this open hair thing, right, going through the whole story is to, to remind us, to help us, to hold on to it. Because if you think about it, the Old Testament ends right here. 400 years of silence and an apathetic people. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? I mean, of course, they don't know it's going to be 400 years, but, but we do. Think about that. 400 years between this page of your Bibles and this page. Silence. But Malachi ends foreshadowing the one who would break the silence. It's kind of strange. He starts talking about this guy, Elijah, a prophet in the Old Testament back in Kings and Chronicles. But the New Testament makes it clear that John the Baptist, who came 400 years later, would fulfill that promise, that John would be this, this kind of Elijah who would come, that John would break the silence, that he would cry out even then to an apathetic people, and that John would prepare the way for one even better, for Jesus himself. And friends, I know how easy it is to grow apathetic. I know how easy it is. But spiritual apathy is the silent killer of Christians. And I've, I've felt that this week. I mean, just transparently, right? And maybe even just these last couple weeks. I'm not sure if it's the, I don't know, the 
post-summer blues or, you know, trying to adjust and the worries of being a parent in school and getting the kids settled and, or even just the, you know, the, the weight of, of life and work and all of that. But I've just felt discouraged, just truthfully, these last couple weeks. Apathetic. And I, I hate that. I hate it because I know deep down, I know that how easy it is for my, my soul to begin doubting God's goodness when it's just ridiculous. He's never been anything but good to me, ever. And he never changes, but yet somehow I'm worried that all of a sudden he might change, right? Aren't we? And then I, those, those moments, my, my heart gravitates to, to settling for second best in just about anything. I mean, you, you know what that's like, right? When you're, especially when you're frustrated, you're discouraged, or you're anxious, you're worried. All the things that you run to to give just a little bit of comfort. We have our, we have our list, whether it's you know, TV or food or sleep or there are certain people. The things that we run to and say, give me what God promises to give me. Because I don't believe God's going to do it. I mean, the one who, who made me, who promises to comfort the hurting. And yet, we're so he- I'm so hesitant to just sort of try him out. We settle for second best. And the cynicism then that so quickly hijacks our souls. But hold on to the story. What else can we do, right? God's not done with you yet. It may take another 400 years like it took for Israel. He's not done with you yet. Your story's not over. He's not done with your heart, your circumstances. He's not done with the people around you. He's not done with, with me or our community or our school or our work. He is not done with us yet. His story continues. And next week, we get to celebrate Christmas in September. The one who comes. The one who died for an apathetic people rebellious people, people who were delighted to put him on a cross. He died for us. And he rose again to, to offer us new life, and he is the one who gives us a new heart, who gives us his spirit to, to live within us, to empower us, even when we don't feel like it, even when it gets hard and frustrating and discouraging, even then he dwells within us for those who trust him through faith. And this same Jesus, he will come again. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, I, even as I say those words, God, I long for you to come. God, we're tired of the brokenness the pain. We're tired of what we see in ourselves, in our hearts. We're tired of the pain we experience, the loneliness and and the agony in other people, the people that we love around us. God, I know so many of us are hurting. And in our pain, it's so easy to grow apathetic. God, forgive us. Forgive me for the ways I doubt your goodness, the ways that I I run to other things, whether it's money or a million other things, God, to, to sort of settle when you offer me such hope and life. And God, I, I pray that you'd protect me from the cynicism that I know so quickly jumps into my life. God, forgive us. God, I thank you that even though our stories are often 
full of hurt. We know that you are the God who comes. And sure, it took 400 years in the story we just looked at, and God, Christians have been waiting for 2,000, so that's been a long time. And yet you keep coming into our lives. So God, I trust you to do that for us now. Help us to believe that you are here. And I pray that you'd wrap your arms around each one of us as we sing your praises. In Christ's name, amen.